Well, we are going to finish up this morning and this section that we have been going through looking at the life of Elijah. And it is only fitting that the end of the story of Elijah would be Elijah being taken to heaven because that's where he is now with the Lord God. And one day in Christ, when you go to be with the Lord, you'll have the chance to meet and fellowship and speak with Elijah about some of the stories that we have talked about. And so we're going to see how Elijah is taken to heaven. It is one of the most unusual of all the stories of how a person is taken to heaven. So we'll take a look at that this morning. We're in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 6 through 14. 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 6 through 14. So getting us up to chapter 6, we have Elisha, who is the, the protege or the one coming along behind Elijah to carry on his ministry. And Elisha is with Elijah, and he's following him around. And somehow, both he and Elijah know that the Lord is getting ready to remove Elijah. He's going to take him on. They don't quite know when or quite know how or quite know where, but they know something's getting ready to happen. And so Elisha won't part from Elijah. He's following him around really close because he knows something's getting ready to happen. He doesn't want to miss it. And so that's where we pick up in 2 Kings uh, uh, chapter 2, verses 6. Please stand with me to honor the Lord as we read his word this morning. Verse 6, then Elijah said to him, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Verse 7, 50 men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them. As they both were standing on the Jordan, then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other and Elisha went over. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So we have Elijah and Elisha, the, the younger disciple. This is the steady pattern that we have in ministry of younger uh, men entering into ministry, being discipled, raised up, taught, and then entering into the ministry themselves. And so Elisha comes close with the Lord, uh, with Elijah, as they, after they cross over the Jordan, which is unusual. We're going to see the, the purpose of why this happens here in a moment, that Elijah would strike the Jordan River with this cloak and it's part. We're like, what's the purpose of this? We'll, we'll hold on to your seats and we'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. But Elijah asks him, what would you have me do for you before I am taken? 
That's a big question. That's a, I mean, if some great, eminently godly person asked you, basically, what blessing would you have me to bestow on you? What would you have me to do for you before I am taken to be with the Lord? That's a big question. And so his answer is fascinating. His answer, the answer of Elisha, is very bold. And Elijah says that, like, wow, you've asked a lot. He says, I would, la- I would have a double portion of your spirit upon me, or the spirit of the Lord, the way that the Lord God worked in Elijah, which was so powerful and so transformative, he says, I want twice as much of that strength and power in my ministry as I carry forward. That is really bold. That's asking a lot. Twice of God's power, twice the revelation of the Lord, twice of the faith to believe God, twice the boldness before evil men. He desires a greater ministry than Elijah had in his own life. And so Elijah affirms this, that this is a good thing that he would ask this. Good thing that he would be so bold to desire not only to carry on the same ministry, but an even greater ministry after he goes away. But he says, I I can't grant this to you. So we're going to have to wait on this and see what God decides on this. And so if you see me when I'm taken from you, then that has been granted to you. If you don't see me, then God has decided not to grant that to you. For it is of the Lord as to what strength and power he will rest upon someone for ministry. And so in verse 12, we have Elijah taken up to heaven directly by a chariot of fire. Okay, this is something that is very unusual. Uh, it is one of only two people in all the record of the Bible that are taken directly to heaven without death. The other is Enoch in Genesis five twenty four. It says he walked with the Lord and then he was no more for the Lord took him. And so there is some other of this, but it is a great and unusual mercy to be spared death. As we're going to spend some time talking about this morning, the normal way in which all people pass into eternity is by death. But not so with Elijah, this great mercy upon him. But I want to finish out our passage here with Elisha before we go to what is going to be the main point of our, of our speaking this morning, is to speak about and look at and think of our soul and the eternal state of the soul in heaven and hell. But before we get there, let's keep going with Elisha. Because as he sees him taken up, it says in verse 12 that he tears his clothes, which is interesting. That is not a, that's usually what we think of in a person at a, at a funeral or something, some terrible sadness. Like, this is not sad. This is a shocking, amazing thing. But it is sad in that Elijah is now gone. And so his ministry is ended. There is a passing a turning from one generation to the next. And so he is sad in that way to see that Elijah is gone. And he is left there literally by himself with his cloak next to him, which was dropped behind. And there's always something very sobering when you've been in the shadow of someone else who is excellent at what they do and strong and capable, and then suddenly they're not there anymore for whatever reason, and the baton gets passed to you, and it's time for you to go and do whatever needs to be done. And that is not a simple thing. But he says in verse 13, And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him, and he went back to the bank of the Jordan. And I think we're going to see here why it is that the Lord has this parting of the Jordan River. Because he goes back to the Jordan River, and he's standing there. 
at the edge of this river, and he's got this rolled up cloak. And just not too long ago, Elijah himself had struck this river and it had parted by the work and the power of God in him. And so what is going through Elisha's mind when he's standing there on the, on the bank of this river with this cloak rolled up? And it was said to him, if you see him ascend into heaven, you will be granted what it is that you ask for. And so he is assuming that that's the case. But when do we really know that the Lord has worked in our life? When we see it and we experience it. And so he's standing on this bank and he's going to step out in an act of faith as to what is going to happen here. And his prayer and his, his question is really important. He's standing there on the side of this river with Elisha's cloak in his hand, believing that he is going to receive what he asked for because it happened as Elijah said it would. And he says, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Because if this river is going to be parted, it's going to be parted by the power of God, not by his power. And so he is asking, is the power of God going to rest on me and my ministry as it did on Elijah? Is it just Elijah's God? Was it a God for that generation and that time? Or is God the God of all time and all generations and he rests his power upon whom he chooses to rest his power? Is the Lord going to continue his work through Elijah into the next generation? And this is a very important question. This is a, a question that rests on each generation of faithful ministers in the church. I would say that so many of my uh, favorite and meaningful ministers that have, I have just grown up under their preaching and teaching, and they've been very formative in my life, are either have already died and passed into glory or are very close to it. And I know that there's many of you in this room the same way, people that you know and you love, you see them uh, passing out of ministry just, just this past week. Um, Timothy Keller was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer, which is basically a death sentence. And I, I have just grown so much into the ministry of that man that he is going to pass into eternity sooner than later. And so what does that mean? It means that some other person must rise up to preach the gospel in the way that he preached the gospel. And some other person, the, the power of God's spirit is going to rest on that person to keep proclaiming the word of God, which is eternal and will not be chained. And so one generation after another calls out to the Lord, where is the Lord? Will you rest upon me in the way that you rested upon this person that the ministry of the word of God and the church might carry on? And so I tell you, it is my prayer that as the Lord has been with other men in the past, that the Lord will be with me and will be with the elders of this church and will continue on and grow and perhaps by the grace of God may even have a, a double portion of the ministry of the Lord God that we might see a greater work of the Lord and the greater work of the Holy Spirit in our time that we would not despair but in a similar way to Elisha standing there on the side of the river, we would ask God for greater things in our time and that we would ask for the Lord to be strong in our midst and that we would boldly ask for those things and see that the Lord grant them because the Lord does still sit upon his throne. He is not the God of past generations. He is the God eternally. He is from from beginning to end, and we should not lose heart in our time, but I believe boldly ask 
as Elijah, Elisha did for a greater work of the Lord in our time. And so he strikes the water and the water parts and the proof is in the pudding. He walks through and it's like, this is unbelievable. He's standing there by himself and there is something that happens there that in a very clear way shows, I am with you. I have answered your prayer and given you the request that you asked of me. And so I praise God for his blessing upon this local church. We have prayed for many years uh, as this church has developed and grown. And we continue to see things that are a work of God's spirit in our time. We pray for an expanded scope. and We pray for expanded ministry. We pray for the salvation of people from every group and every age range and every nationality. And we pray that we would be able to cooperate well with other Christians in our area and in missions around the world. And it is a joy for me to see a work of the Lord in this place. And we will continue to boldly ask for the Lord to pour out his spirit upon this church that we might be a part of God's work in our our time. Well, I would like to turn back to what happens here with Elijah in this chariot of fire. Where does this chariot take Elijah? Well, it takes him to heaven. And I want us to spend a lot of time this morning thinking about that and focusing on heaven and the glory of heaven and the eternal state of the soul. Before we go too far, I want to point out another interesting and unusual instance in the Bible. Because we've talked about Elijah and his being taken directly without death to heaven. But did you know that there is an example in the Bible of a group of people without death being taken directly into hell? And uh, that is something that I had overlooked until I started studying this passage and looking for something else. And it is in Numbers chapter 16. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Numbers 16 is the rebellion of Korah, which is a powerful instance in the Bible. It is a man who organizes hundreds of people to overthrow Moses and to take away the priesthood from the ones that the Lord God has designated very clearly over time. And when this rebellion rises up, the Lord in his wrath tells the people to get back from the houses of these that are leading this rebellion because he is getting ready to do something that he will not do any other time in the Bible. It says in verse 33 of 16, So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And it is a it's meant to be a shocking thing. Like what in the world just happened here? Instead of someone gloriously being taken into heaven apart from death, someone is terrifyingly taken directly into hell from the face of the earth because of the judgment of God. Both of these instances are powerful statements of the Lord recorded in scripture for us to read and hear and think about what is happening here. One is for blessing over an, an enduring, passionate, faith-filled life. The other is for damnation, for intentional and unrepentant rebellion. One inspires hope, and the other strikes us with terror and thinking, what in the world is happening here? However, neither 
are a normal path to eternity. They both shake us up and make us think about eternity, one entering into heaven and one entering into hell. But what is it about eternity? Because all of us will enter into eternity one day, but the gateway into eternity for the vast majority of all humanity is death. When we reach death and we pass from death into eternity, the soul does not cease to exist. The, right, the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so it is appointed for a person once to die, once. Many religions teach that we die over and over and we're somehow reborn and we keep coming back. We need to understand the Bible teaches that death occurs once and it is a final passage. Those who die in faith, believing in Jesus as their Savior, will enter into the kingdom of God. They will enter into heaven. Those who die in unbelief, living in sin under the condemnation of God, will enter into hell or to outer darkness for the penalty of their sins. And I want you to hear loudly today from me that there is no third way. There is no other alternative to these two directions of the soul. Counter to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, there is no purgatory. There is no place, no antechamber to death, no waiting room where you can go and work further and try to please God more in some half-dead state. There is no reincarnation where if you are bad in this life, you are reincarnated as some lesser form, but you have the chance to come back in some greater form. And there is no annihilation as taught by the secularists, that we just live for here and now and do the best you can, enjoy yourself as much as you can, and then it's just over. It's like a candle being blown out and that's it. It's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that the soul will go on forever. But all these theories have a purpose because all these theories work to give hope in death to those who choose to reject Jesus Christ. Let me say that one more time. All these theories work to give hope to those who reject Jesus Christ in their death. And they want to comfort themselves with some idea that I can reject Christ in this life and still be okay. And so there's many other iterations of this, but the scripture is very clear that it is important that we dwell on the eternal state. It is important that we dwell and think about the final resting place of our soul. Because James 4 is one of the verses, there are many in the Bible that speak about this, but James 4 says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We've all been up to the Shenandoah Valley and drove up in the morning and there's a great mist and it's like, oh, this is so cool, but you got to kind of savor it and take the picture quick because as soon as the sun comes over the mountain, the mist is gone and it blows away. And the scriptures say that our life is like that. You may feel like this week drug on forever, but it is not that way. You will come to a place in your life where your life seems to accelerate faster and faster and faster, and you can't believe you've reached the place that you've reached in your life, and your life has just gone by in a moment, it seems like. Another way the Bible talks about life is it's like grass or a flower that grows up and is beautiful for just a moment, and then the season changes and it's gone. And so the focus of Jesus and the prophets and the apostles was never this life. 
It was always the life that is yet to come. John 3.16 says what we, so many of us know by heart, I hope you know by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal or everlasting life. Jesus came that we might have eternal life, that we might have everlasting life in him. And this is what heaven is about. This is what the kingdom of God is about. And Jesus believed in and taught the eternal existence of the soul. So often when I talk with people that don't know Christ or have no relationship with him and don't know where to start, I will just ask them, do you believe that you have a soul? And I've never had a person answer me saying, no, they don't believe they have a soul. Every person that I've ever talked to believes and knows that there's something more to them than blood and guts and bones and what is just sitting there in the seat. That there's something that animates you. There's some unusual, indescribable part of you that is unique to you. And we know also from the history of the world that people have always had a sense that there is something beyond this life. And that you have to go to great lengths to educate and work out of people a sense that you have a soul and that there is some God and some life yet to come. And so Jesus, as the revelation, the incarnate revelation of God, comes to reveal to us what is going on, to speak to us about heaven and hell and the eternal existence of the soul. And so I want to speak to you a little bit about heaven this morning. Because it is so worth spending time thinking about and speaking about. I'm going to speak about five things about heaven. First of all, heaven is our, uh, and this, these could be put in different order. So if you don't like the order, sorry, I just kind of, this is the order, the best order I can give you. The first is that it is an inheritance and a reward. An inheritance. I don't know how many of you have ever received a, an inheritance from a family member or a friend, but let me tell you, we don't deserve the inheritance of heaven or the reward of heaven. We gain an inheritance in heaven by adoption through Christ, that Christ says, I love you, I'm going to set my love on you, and I'm going to adopt you and bring you in to my household. And you're not going to get stuck over to the side. I'm going to give you a full inheritance in heaven because of what I am doing and because I love you. And so it is told to us in Revelation chapter 2, this is just a couple of the amazing verses talking about people enduring in their faith and their love for Christ until the very end and what will happen with them. Revelation 2, 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And just a few verses further, verse 10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. This speaks a little bit of the reward of heaven, this inheritance, this reward. We deserve none of this. The idea that I would be rewarded for entering into heaven is just amazing grace, astonishing grace. I don't deserve a reward for this life, but the Lord God loves to give his children good things. And so he is going to reward those who are faithful to the end. And so this will be this great joyful entrance into some place where we belong because we are told that we are citizens of this great heaven, this kingdom of God by the mercy and grace of Jesus. So that's one thing. The kingdom of God is an inheritance and a reward. Second, the kingdom of God is a place of rest. Heaven is a place of rest. 
the author of Hebrews compares it to the promised land of the Israelites, that they were to go into this plant, this place that was to be a place of great blessing and rest and plenty, and that heaven is the final promised land of those who are the people of God, that heaven will be an end to the deep struggles and pain of this life, and it will be a place of eternal rest. I don't know about you, but life gets really busy sometimes, and there is a looking forward to rest But the rest that the Lord God would have for us is not in this life. It is not retirement. It does not reside in Florida. The rest of God is in heaven. That is what we seek to do. And if we have a a mentality that Paul has and the apostles had, he says, I will continue on in fruitful labor in this life until I am called home to be with the Lord Jesus. And then I will rest and I will rest forever in the presence and the glory of Christ. So second, heaven is a place of rest. Third, heaven is a place of relationship. It is where we will see the Lord Jesus face to face. And as near and as beautiful and as wonderful as the the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is in this life, it will be elevated to something greater and more so, where we will be in the full presence of the Lord and enter into a time of relationship with Christ that we have not experienced in this life. We will also have a time of relationship with other Christians as we are together with every tongue, tribe, and nation, people that we have longed to spend time with in this life and we just never could seem to find the time to get a cup of coffee with them because just life was crazy. Don't think you're the only one like that. It's always been like that. Part of the hope and the joy of heaven will be spending time with other Christians. It will be like Eden restored but then far greater. And so all the good things that we look at in the Garden of Eden, we say, wow, that'd be amazing to have lived like that. Heaven will be that and far greater, far more. You have Jesus walking, the Lord God walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden and the joy that that appears to be, that we will walk with the Lord one day like that. Fourth, heaven is a place of perfection. It is free from the power of sin and death. A place of perfection. If we look at the the idea of Eden, it is far beyond Eden because Eden was innocent in that it had no sin corrupting it, but it was not perfect. That's how sin enters in and we end up with a fall. But heaven is perfect. We are freed from the, the enslavement of sin when we come to salvation in Christ, that we are freed then to choose differently and to live for Christ, but we are always now under the presence and the reality of sin that dogs behind us every single moment of every day. But in heaven, we will be freed from that. We will be in the perfection of the presence of the Lord God where sin and death cannot enter in. And the last I'm just going to touch on a little bit, and hopefully you'll, you'll think on this a little bit more. I, I brought, a, brought a giant book with me today. Um, this is some writings of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is a great theologian of the American colonial period, and he writes of heaven, fifthly, as a, as a place that is full of love. Now, what do I mean by that? I believe that love is the master virtue of the Christian life. It is what all the other virtues flow out from. That's why Jesus says, I am love. And Edwards writes about how as Jesus in his presence and his glory will fill all of heaven as, as if light. So the, the glory of the love of Christ will be so abundant in filling all that is there. And so I want to read a little bit about this. 
God is the fountain of love. As the sun is the fountain of light, therefore the glorious presence of God in heaven fills heaven with love. As the sun placed in the midst of the hemisphere on a clear day fills the world with light. The apostle tells us that God is love. And therefore, seeing he is an infinite being, it follows that in an, he is an infinite fountain of love. Seeing he is an all-sufficient being, it follows that he is full and overflowing and an inexhaustible fountain of love. Seeing he is an unchangeable and eternal being, he is an unchangeable and an eternal source of love. There, even in heaven, dwells that God from whom every stream of holy love, yea, every drop that is or ever has been, proceeds from him. And to read just a little bit more about that. Divine love is in him, not as a subject which was received from another, but as its original seat where it is of itself. Love is in God as light is in the sun, which does not shine by a reflected light as the moon and planets do, but by its own light and as the fountain of light and love flows out from him toward all the inhabitants of heaven. And so it's a glorious picture of the fact that love does not come from some other place. It is not a virtue that God brings from somewhere else. It comes from him. It radiates from him as light and heat comes from the sun. And we are in the full presence of Christ in heaven. The great virtue of the Lord God of love will be overflowing and overwhelming, causing heaven to be a place of love. And I think that is very, very important for us to think about. All right, Elijah. Elijah goes straight from his life of persecution, isolation, deprivation, and being dogged by one of the most evil kings that ever lived in Israel straight into this place. Boom. Unbelievable. It's, a, it's something worth thinking about because what's going to happen for every single one of you when you know Christ as your Savior, there's going to come a day where you're going to go straight from persecution, sickness, great pain, agony, struggle, all the things of this world. I don't know what you're dealing with, what you brought into this place today, but you brought some hardship and struggle into this place today. Some of you deeper than others. But there will come a time when you close your eyes in death, and when you open your eyes again, you will be in the glorious presence of the Lord Jesus. And we believe this by faith. But this is what is taught to us clearly, abundantly from the beginning to the end of Scripture. That the soul exists eternally. And those who put their faith and trust in Christ will one day experience the glory of heaven. By the gateway of death, it is the same for all who believe in Jesus. And so I had a young man this past Wednesday night ask me. It was a very good question. Because uh, we had a question and answer thing at the youth group this past Sunday night. He said, what happens to my soul when I die? That's a good question, young man. That's a very good question. And well, what does happen? So we have Elijah here. We've been talking about death. We've been talking about heaven, hell, all kinds of eternal things. What happens? Well, the Bible teaches us that our soul goes to be with the Lord, those who know and trust and believe in Christ. And so this is exactly what happens to Elijah, uh, Elijah in a different way. But ultimately the same end from point A to point B as will be with all who trust in Christ. What is unusual about Elijah is that he does not have a body to bury. And so everyone else 
They leave that body behind and we bury it in the ground. And we all know when we go to a funeral and we see someone and we see this open casket, we're like, wow, it doesn't seem anything like the person I remember. Why? Because all the animation of their soul is gone out. It's but a shell sitting there. But it will be buried in the ground. And what the scriptures tell us, and it is an important Christian doctrine, is the resurrection of the body from the dead. So the, the, the scriptures teach us that we will not live forever as uh, un, in, unembodied spirits, which many like Hollywood movies love to talk about, like wandering spirits throughout the world. This is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that in the return of Christ, similar to the resurrection of Christ from the dead, the dead in Christ shall rise. The bodies of those who have died in Christ will be resurrected and they will be united forever in glory with the Lord. And so there will be in the eternal state of all believing Christians something similar to what happens with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, where he is known by the disciples. He is physical. He is glorified. He is without sin. There is something radiant about him, something unusual, something otherworldly about him that in some way our resurrected bodies and saved and redeemed souls will be similar to what has happened to the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That's why he's called the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one to pass out of death into uh, eternal life in which he will give to us and bring us into that state. So we get a little glimpse of this with Elijah himself. Let's turn over to Mark chapter 9. So a thousand years later, you flip over a few pages in your Bible and you've got a thousand years later, uh, Mark chapter 9. Totally different cast of characters. We've got Peter, James, John with Jesus up on a mountain where Jesus has intentionally called them up there. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 4. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could possibly bleach them. And there appeared to them... Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. What? That's, that's, that's wild. Like, what is happening here? A thousand years later, these people have no, they, they've heard the stories of Elijah. They've heard the stories of Moses. We have an outbreak of heaven into this world, a little moment where there is a an opening, a window of heaven. There's a number of places that this happens in the Bible where there's a, a crossover between the, the spiritual and the physical world. And Elijah and Moses are standing here in the, the full radiant glory of heaven, which strikes them until they fall down on their faces and are absolutely terrified at what is happening here. And Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus almost a thousand years later. Just as we talked about, about heaven, they're living they're radiant and glorious. They're at rest. They're in relationship with Jesus right here on this mountain. And so when we look at the stages of salvation, and I think it's important for you to, to grasp this because I think sometimes we have an underdeveloped understanding of our salvation in the Bible. The first step of salvation is justification. When we put our faith and trust, when we repent of our sins and we believe in the Lord Jesus, we are justified before God or declared righteous before God, not guilty before God. And if you are to die after that, you will enter into the presence of the Lord because you have been justified by the work of Christ Jesus. But most people go on and live for some years after their justification. And the Bible calls that sanctification, that there's a growth 
in godliness. There should be a growth in godliness over the period and years of our life. But we will never fully be rid of, the, of sin in our life as we've talked about already. So when we pass from death unto eternity into heaven, there is glorification which the Bible talks about of sin being fully removed and us going into the presence of Christ and us waiting for the second coming of Christ and all the completion of what the Lord is doing. And this is the final state of our salvation. So in one sense, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will one day finally and completely be saved. And so we see Elijah as he has gone through his life in just a window of him in heaven in that glorious state. We don't get a window. I think this may be the only character he and Moses will see both sides, life, and then long after that, a picture, a little glimpse of what it is for them to be in heaven with the Lord. And so I hope this is encouraging to you. Elijah, though taken off this earth differently than most, still found salvation in the same way, by grace alone, through faith alone. And that's important for you to understand that Jesus on this mountain, he was looking forward in faith from his time past, didn't know the name of Jesus, but he knew a Messiah was promised and would come. And by faith, he trusted and believed in the work of the Lord and looked forward to that work which was to come. In the same way, you and I look backwards. We do know the name of Christ and we, are, we rejoice in that and should be thankful for that. But we, in the same way, by faith, look back to the work that Christ has done for us. Both of us looking to the cross of Christ for our salvation. So as I close today, I would ask, are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Christ? Or are you consumed with this world? Do you love this world? Do you follow after this world? Do you seek the things of this world? Or do you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? The Lord Jesus and his apostles and these prophets and these people we're talking about here sought heavenly things. They set their mind on Christ and the things that were of the Lord, the things that were beyond this world. And it consumed the way that they lived and carried them into eternity. I urge you, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved. For there is only one life and it will soon be passed and only what is done for Christ will last. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this time. I thank you for this glorious and most unusual story of Elijah being carried up to heaven by you directly according to an unusual dispensation of your will. But Lord, you have gloriously through Christ and the cross of Jesus and through his resurrection made a way that we all might enter into this glory of heaven. And so I pray for every person under the sound of my voice today that they would believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they would be convinced and drawn to you by the work of the Holy Spirit to believing what is true about Jesus Christ and what is true about heaven and hell and the eternal state. Lord, may we have hearts that repent of our sins and turn away from them as we now enter into a time of confession with the Lord's Supper. Lord, be with us, change our hearts, work in us that we might have a clearer picture of who Christ is today. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen.